Welcome to American History Untucked. I'm your host, David Silkenet. My guest this week is Scott Reynolds Nelson, who is the uh, professor at William & Mary uh, and the author of a number of books, including uh, Nation of Deadbeats, uh, which is his most recent work on economic depressions uh, during the 19th century. Uh, he's the author of Steel Driving Man, which is a history of the the, the legendary uh, railroad worker John Henry, um, and Iron Confederacies, which is the history of, of the railroad industry uh, during the Civil War and uh, Reconstruction. Uh, I really, really enjoyed my, my conversation with Scott. He's uh, got research leave and he's spending uh, the year in... Uh, in the North Carolina Piedmont, in the Triangle. Uh, and we get into all kinds of things. We get to talk about his experience growing up in Florida, talking about his experience with his father, which is something that comes up in, in his new book, uh, and to talk about Bruce Springsteen. But uh, you got to stick around for the end of the conversation to hear about, about his time with uh, Bruce Springsteen. So here's my conversation with Scott. So welcome to the show, Scott. It's really great to be able to talk to you. Uh, thanks so much for having me, David. Uh, and so I, we were talking before the show, and and you're you and your family have decided to ensconce yourself in North Carolina for the year. Yeah, my uh, partner Cindy Hamovich just uh, has a fellowship at the National Humanities Center, and I'm on leave this year. So the, we loaded up the truck and we moved moved to um, to Carbro for a year. So we've been we've been doing research and working at uh, UNC UNC's library, which has been uh, which has been terrific. So it's like coming back home, I guess, since you both have, uh, just went to grad school there. So it's a uh... it is a little strange. I, I I was talking to somebody, one of the other, one of the faculty members who's still there, and uh, I said I w- wanted to try to get a Carol in the library, and he said, "Oh, you'll never get a Carol. I'm a, I'm a full professor and a name chair, mm-hmm. and I I can't get my own Carol." But but I had worked in the library as a as a in the reference desk for about uh, well six months or so, and so uh, I, when I filled in my Carol application, I mentioned this. And so uh, I got a, I got an excellent Carol. <laughs> so, it's, it's all about whether you know the right guy in the library there. That's uh, part of it. That's part of it. It's also, you know, having, you know, 80, working for 80 hours a week at various jobs is ultimately pays off at some future you know, long distance point. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, the, the National Humanities Center that does some, does some really great sort of programming stuff. And I guess it's a great place to... Yeah, it's great to sort of hang out with a bunch of humanists and and talk over uh, ideas and stuff like that. And it's a it's a really interesting mix of people from all over the world. So that's that's also interesting. So I want I got a chance. I was lucky enough to be asked to review you know the uh, Nation of Dead Beach, your book that came out a couple of years ago mm-hmm. uh, for the nineteenth uh, century American history, which is the the British. Uh huh. All right. Of, uh, and one of the things that really struck me was the way you started the book with talking about your dad. So why right. did you decide to start an academic book about economic panics, mostly in the 19th century, uh, talking about your dad in Florida? Uh, well, part of it is, I think, that you know, all of us, when we write history, there's there are deeper stories there about why we become interested in things. Mm-hmm. And... Um, for me, this, this moment, I, you know, or this, this series about watching my dad do these repossessions, my dad was, a um, in the economic downturn around the time of the first Gulf, first oil panic of 1973, you know, when the oil prices went up fivefold, uh, there was, there were a lot of people kind of suffering. And my dad did repossessions for Zayers, Woolco. 
And um, I, it, it moved me uh, deeply. I was like nine or 10 and watched him from a car, watched him do these repossessions. And so he brought I you was, along with him in the yeah. car to go do the repossessions? <laughs> he did. So uh, my parents were divorced and my, my mom and dad were, were separated. And we would be in the car with my dad and he'd be driving along and he said, oh, oh, I've got a repo here. And he'd, <laughs> he'd stop about a block and a half away and leave us in the car, roll the windows down. And then he would go and do his whole routine where he'd walk in and, you know, he'd pretend to pick something up off the front yard and walk up to the door. And as if you were returning it or something, he'd, he, uh, or pretend to be a meter reader or something like that. And then he'd get his, get his foot in the door. And then once he got his foot in the door, he was inside and he would take away, you know, mostly the stuff that he took away were things you bought on the installment plan at Woolco or Zayers, like, um, toaster ovens or televisions usually televisions and stereos were the things that he that he repossessed and um yeah and so that was it, it was very it was it was kind of arresting to watch that from you know we're from a block over a block away but watch and so you're process. sitting in the car and your dad's just walking into somebody's house and walking out with a toaster yes yes uh so with you know a stereo or something and and um and then we'd see some part of the interchange or often, you know, the person would be yelling or something like that. Sometimes they just wave at him, you know, I mean, they understood that they hadn't made their payments on these goods. So, um, and my dad called these people deadbeats and that's where I first heard the term deadbeats. And it's obviously not a, it's an ugly term. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, described these people. And I think doing repossessions gave him a pretty ugly view of the world. I mean, I think, uh, seeing people who didn't weren't paying their debts and then collecting on those debts, um, he saw people kind of at their worst. And so, I think you know he and I argued for many years about um, you know the, the country and what its future was like and what the ups and downs were like and who was good and who wasn't good. And you know we were very politically at odds for many many years. And uh, I think in many ways we just kept often returning to this. Uh, the seventies, uh, and, and his doing repossessions and how he thought about people. And, um, but watching those, those, my dad do those repossessions did make me think about economic downturns and how people got into this position and, and what it was like to be, you know, to have the, something that mattered a lot to you taken away from you. Uh, and it, it's, it's impact, not just, you know, on your family, but, but, that story repeated again and again and again all over uh, the country, all over the world in the in the 1970s, 1870s, the 1830s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that story, that kind of question of what this was like uh, stuck with me for a long time. Because I think a lot of us have that, you know, experience, personal experience, either with your parents or growing up or something that, that sort of inspires the kind of history we do. Right. Um, and one of the things that struck me is that we're often sort of told to sort of not tell that story, to tell, <laughs> to tell the other story about the, the intellectual origins of whatever our project was. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, and, and – and, and... I think what sort of works about what, – what what's makes sense about the story and helps, helps explain it is that it really was a kind of 25-year, 30-year argument with my dad. That, so it wasn't just I had this feeling and I kind of uh, worked – worked through this feeling, you know, I don't know, experience with reenacting or whatever. It was, it was really 
um, the sort of start of an sustained and extended argument with my father and other people like him about the economy and about what it is and who's affected and those sorts of things. So it, it wasn't just that it was a moving experience. It was also um, my own wrestling with all of the other ways in which people uh, describe and narrate uh, financial downturns. That uh, so, so there was something productive in the in the force of, in the sense that I was constantly being forced back to first principles, having to defend myself. And uh, I feel like that's the job of a historian is you can think something, but but you need constantly to be challenged. You need constantly that that pushback of someone else to say, I don't see it this way. I, I see it that way. And so, if in the, his half of the conversation, these people are deadbeats, what's your what's, what was your half of the conversation? Right, and my my half of the conversation was. Uh, you know, initially it was, <laughs> you know, a 10 year old, I'm not gonna, I, I can't even remember what a 10 year old thought, but you know, decades later I would say, well, this is, you know, this, that was 1973 oil prices were, you know, up fivefold people had to pay their gas bills, you know, and that's, that sort of thing. So, so partly it's, it's, uh, trying to understand other things in the economy that are happening that bring this about and, and particularly commodity prices, uh, and in a way that's really what the book is is about in the 1970s it was oil in the 1830s it was cotton in the 18 teens it was uh flour and wool goods uh in the 18 1890s it's it's sugar and so mm -hmm. thinking about commodity prices and how it has a really radical effect on the economy is is i think um the one of the sort of insights that i brought to the book is is thinking about the commodity and, and how the commodity um certain commodity prices have this really tremendous overwhelming power uh, in terms of shaping how the kind of rest of the world operates. Well, the, the other thing that really struck me in reading it was the extent to which you, your discussion of, of these downturns in the past are shaped, are, are you, just, you, you make reference to downturns in the present to say this is, you know, like a, like a CDO, you know, right. you try right. to, connect the packs to the present in a way that I think lot sometimes historians are very hesitant sure. to do. Sure. Sure. It, it, right. There's a, there's a sense in which you're anachronistic, uh, in, if you say that something is like a CDO or you say that, um, you know, the Jefferson's, uh, um, land office, the land office that Jefferson helps to create is a lot like Fannie Mae or, hey, or sure. uh, yeah, Freddie Mac. That that it's it's it does it's um, you know sort of self consciously anachronistic, and we're told not to do that. I I feel like most of my uh, career in the last I don't know fifteen years has been basically uh, ignoring all the advice I got in graduate school. <laughs> 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 uh, you know uh, about voice and about how you tell a story and things like that. And so one of the things is you know not to use anachronism because it cuts it cuts away at your um, your scholarship it makes you it makes you sound like you're constantly obsessed about the present uh and which, which we all are because we all live right, in the present right right and so i i think i think that's just a move really it's not it's it's not actually a um to say you know that that uh i i know more about milton than i know about social security you know i that that sort of that, that's a move by historians it's a, it's a it's a kind of aristocratic move to say that i'm more moved by um the, the you know the english civil war than i am by the um you know events of the last uh, decade and 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 um 
it's, <laughs> I, I think it's, you know, goes in a way weirdly harkens back to this older view of the aristocratic intellectual who sits in the study and knows a dozen languages and is a kind of font of information. And I respect that in a certain sense, but I also think it's, it's a kind of uh, a very intentional move to distance ourselves from the rest of the world, distance ourselves as historians from the rest of the world. And we're, we are part of that world and to pretend otherwise, I think is, is kind of, uh, is kind of fake. And so, so I, 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 initially, you know, certainly you don't want to constantly drag the present into the past mm. because it is a distraction and you are trying to tell a story. And when you're telling a story, you don't want to, you know, bring in, if you're telling a story about the middle ages, you don't want to bring in laser beams, you know, it, it, there's, <laughs> that'd be a great story. Though. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you're not, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a, there's a time when that, you know, it, it does get over the top, but on the other hand, um, sometimes when you're explaining something, you you can resort to uh, a current example that is more gripping and familiar to people mm-hmm. and, and helps them understand. And I think, you know, you're you're constantly you demonstrate your, the fact that you're a scholar, not by assuming this aristocratic pose of, you know, I'm not I'm not touched by the present, um, but really by, you know, footnotes and by, reason, you know, reason scholarship and reason and, you know, by saying, well, some people said it this way and some people said it this way. And I say it that way, that kind of thing, all the, all the things that we do as scholars, um, those aren't affectations. And I think that we, you know, we desperately need those. We can't, t- I think doing history without footnotes is a, is a terrible kind of crime, but, um, but, but sometimes, uh, you know, bringing the present into the past is, is, uh, is a, is a kind of responsibility of the, of the author. And, and certainly if it's about making something clear or making something understandable. So, so you said, when in your career did you decide to sort of toss away with the wisdom of graduate school to <laughs> do these kinds of things? Well, I, I have to say that it's, it's uh, I, well, so I came into graduate school, you know, I, when I was in, when I was in high school, I wanted to be a writer. Uh, I wanted to be a poet, you know, I wanted to be, and, and I wrote a lot of terrible poetry when I was a kid. A lot of terrible, as did we all. Yeah. As did we all, right? A lot of terrible uh, short stories and things like that when I was a kid. And when I get to got to graduate school, um, all of those flourishes were beaten out of me by you know by advisors, and probably rightly so. You know, when you're, I don't know, 21, 22 years old, try, you know, trying to tell a story like the way that uh, I don't know. Uh, Faulkner tells it, or the way that uh, Proust t- tells a story, you, it's it doesn't it, it doesn't. <laughs> Your advisor work. tells you no, start again. This is not what I <laughs> exactly. I remember Peter Walker. I don't know if you remember Peter Walker at William so. Mary. He, he died recently. He was a Southern historian. He told me my work would never see the light of print. Uh, <laughs> that was <laughs> because uh, you know I tended to overwrite, and uh-huh. this was this was a terrible thing. So. Uh, and so there's a definitely a, a, a great deal of discipline I got in graduate school about, you know, how to footnote and how to cite. But I think all of the attempts at um, display of form and and writing were also kind of and, and graceful writing were, were kind of uh, beaten out of me. And, and at the time, probably in the 20s, I probably needed that. Um, I guess I had a midlife crisis around the, the 30s <laughs> when I was in my mid 30s. And. I, uh, that's when I wrote Steel Driver Man yeah. and Steel Driver Man was a huge kind of screw you to the profession. It was a, it was a, a different kind you know, this, of book, that, different kind of book. This is the way I'm supposed to write and I'm not going to do it. Right. Yeah. I'm sick of it. 
And so I'm going to tell a, a personal story and I'm going to tell you about how I did the research and I'm going to tell you all the mistakes I made. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I'm going to, you know, bring you along on the journey with me and, and you decide for yourself if I'm right or wrong. Uh, I'm not going to tell you that I have everything figured out. And I thought that that would be, uh, I did, I did it for myself. It's, it's my version of the pink Cadillac, you know, that you, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> or the, or the Mazda Miata. Uh, exactly. Or well, if that's a midlife crisis, you did better than most people. <laughs> Oh. And so, so John Henry was my midlife crisis book and I had expected it to be slammed in the HR and the JH and all the, you know, our, our big, big journals. Yeah. And it, weirdly it wasn't, you know, I think people were kind of ready for that. And I, I think partly it is because I did keep the things I did learn in graduate school about footnoting and about you know, paying attention to all the sources and being, you know, historiographically um, honest about you know, where, where things come from and that sort of thing. Who did you work with in graduate school? I should know this, but I don't, I don't know this. <laughs> so I managed to avoid all the Southern historians when I was at uh, UNC, and partly because they were a kind of, they, they had an idea about what history was supposed to be. I was a Leon Fink student. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. I, I started out, I came to Chapel Hill, actually an undergrad. I finished undergrad at Chapel Hill. I went to two other institutions. And there were people that I thought I would work with, people whose work, I had read and who I respected based on their written work. And they were not such great advisors, it turned out. Mm. Uh, Leon, I did not know. Uh, he, you know, he did labor history. His, yeah. He had one book, basically, which was on the Knights of Labor at the time. Um, but he was just a, he was just a, a kind of, he, he was an intellectual, you know, he was somebody who cared a lot about ideas. And um, he was very, very hard, very, very tough person to write for, really difficult person in some ways, but, um, but he also kind of took you seriously as a colleague in a yeah. way that, and that was not like many of the other folks at the time at UNC who, who did Southern history, who saw you as, you know, little, um, <laughs> you know, mentees or something like that, or, or yeah. people yeah. to be, uh, you know, to be, um, beaten into form or something like that. And, I've, uh, yeah, I've only met Leon once I was doing a project on Chicago and I when this is oh, when yeah. I was in graduate school and uh -huh. yeah. I emailed him this is after he had left UNC and he had he had gone to I guess University of Illinois at Chicago and uh -huh. I totally didn't expect him to respond to my email and he met me for <laughs> coffee and took uh -huh. the better part of an afternoon to talk to about the stupid ideas I had about it as a first year graduate student. Uh, right. And so I've, I had sort of the same experience with you know finding somebody who could and I, and I also had this at, at UNC where I had sort of the right of, when I finally got the right advisor and it, yes, it, it makes a great deal of difference, even if they're, what they're doing isn't exactly what you're doing. Exactly. Yeah. No, I think that that's the thing is that this is why I think a big graduate program is the place to go. If you're thinking about graduate school, it, because if there's just one person who does the thing that you do, like at Hopkins or whatever, mm -hmm. this is a very medieval kind of system, then, then you're often at the mercy of that person. And it could be pretty, pretty uh, problematic. Mm -hmm. uh, at, we're at a bigger place like UNC, where you've got a bunch of other people, you you can move around a little bit and uh, and find somebody that that you know fits your your work style, but is also going to be a be a mentor. So, yeah, it's a funny thing. So, in writing Deadbeats, yeah, I'm just, there's a whole lot of people who are turning to capitalism and looking at capitalism in the past, I guess the past five years in particular, where right. this has become sort of a sort of a hot topic. I was wondering, and I guess you're on sort of the cutting edge of this, this, this wave of scholarship coming out on, on from 
mean, obviously, economic historians have been doing capitalism for a long time, sure. but sure. but people who are not sort of died in the wool economic historians looking at capitalism in its various manifestations. Why do you think that's happening now? Uh, yeah, it's a, that's a good question. I think, uh, well, it is funny, right? Cause my first book, Iron Confederacies was a history of the South and the corporation and the relationship between the South and the corporation. And it was, and it was, it, it, uh, sank like a stone, I think, uh, as a book in part, um, because there weren't, you know, it, there wasn't a lot of interest at the time mm -hmm. in the, the corporate form and, and its relationship to, you know, what, what is the South and those sorts of questions. Um, I, I think, you know, now is the time in, in part because there was, well, economic history became dissevered from history right around the time of, um, oh, I want to say 1965 or 1966. Partly um, in this, in economics as a discipline is becoming much more abstract, mm -hmm. uh, much more positivist. And economic historians are uh, like, Fogel and others um, come in and say, well, you know, the railroads actually had no effect on the economy. And, you know, all the historians say, well, railroads had no effect on the 19th century economy. And they're sputtering and they don't yeah. really know what to say. And so the, it, 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 economic historians kind of end up in this little enclave in which right. no one really listens to them. Mm -hmm. And and they, in turn, refer to the rest of us as mandarins, right? And, yeah. and that we're... We're um, you know, growing our fingers long and we're telling stories, spinning stories, but we don't actually know anything about what we're talking about. And, and they have data and numbers. and Right. They have data and numbers and they've, they've done, they've got the punch cards. And mm -hmm. so I think, <laughs> and so I think that that uh, was where things stood really from the sixties to the late nineties or mm -hmm. early aughts. And um, maybe even later than that. And, um, and then at some point I think that, surety that that absolute kind of um confidence in the sort of positivistic power of numbers to tell a story about the past without any reference to um or with relatively little reference to other documents like wills or or um uh, you know people's understandings of the economy and all these other sorts of things that that economists just dismissed as being uh you know storytelling and nonsense that that um that they became less competent. They became less competent really after 2008 and 2009. Their mm -hmm. whole story about how the economy worked, uh, economists and economic historians, started to fall flat. Uh, they they didn't have good models that, that predicted what was going to happen, which was a you know massive um, sell-off, you know, 40% drop in the stock market, 50% uh, drop in, drop in, in uh, real estate prices. They had never seen that before. In a way, you know, the historians that, that this was our time to shine in a way, <laughs> because, yeah. you know, we're coming along and saying, I, I remember talking to this guy uh, who was the head of the um, uh, he was the chief risk manager for Countrywide. And this was in I, 2011 or something. And he said to me, we were just talking about uh, economics and history. And he said, well, the fact is that he says, the fact is um uh, you got to worry about having anyone start to exactly. sentence that way. <laughs> you know there's a problem there. He said, the fact is that um, prices, real estate prices have never dropped uh, 30% in, in history. And I said, well, yeah, except for 1819 when they dropped 40% in sh Chicago, in Cleveland and in, uh, and, and um, Western Pennsylvania and around Boston. 
And and then then there's 1837, and there they dropped 25 to 30 percent, uh, particularly in uh, Alabama and Mississippi. And then there's 1873 where they dropped 30 percent. And he had no idea. He said, I had no idea that prices dropped that much. And I said, well, you know, ask a historian, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so, so um, the trouble for us historians, though, sometimes is in, in speaking to economists is that they do want – it's not just that they want hard numbers, but there's a kind of reasoning mm. that they um, they sort of work through that's sometimes very hard and often, I think, intentionally mystifying. So, you know, you you'll you'll go to a, uh, these economic conferences and they'll say, well, what about the bid ask spread or what about the um, they'll just they'll use a lot of economic jargon that. It doesn't mean anything to anybody except for them. Yeah. Except for them, and and I mean, it, it it actually, you know, modern portfolio theory. They'll they'll just belt these words out, and you've got to, you know, luckily we have Wikipedia now. But um, <laughs> <laughs> to a certain extent, there's a, there are a lot of tools that they use. Some of which are useful, some of which are just jargon. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's a little bit harder, I think, for us historians often to kind of get up to speed on that stuff. Luckily, uh, at UNC, I, I worked with Peter Kaklanis, and Peter Kaklanis and I. He's an, he was an economic historian, was a neoclassical economist, uh, still is. Um, and he and I disagreed about everything. He was very much like my father in that mm-hmm. sense. He, he thought things would be radically different uh, than I did. Um, but I had to, in arguing with him, I did have to learn a lot of economic theory uh, or enough to to figure out what he was complaining about and, and turn it around. And so that I didn't think it would be useful. My, my uh, weird and difficult arguments with him would be useful 30 years later, but in a way they were because I, I knew kind of how economists were inclined to argue. And it was, it helped me, um, you know, j- just think about melding those two things together. Um, but yeah, there's, there's, this is, inter- these are interesting times. Um, I, w- I was at the, I gave a talk at the Federal Reserve a couple of months ago, and they told me that every branch of the Federal Reserve was going to hire a historian in the next year. You see, and I think that's amazing. I don't think they would have had you speak before right, 2008, and now, <laughs> exactly. you know, now they're saying, well, we, we need some context for this because whatever, you know, math guy we had here earlier wasn't telling us the right story. Right, and there are dozens of economists who work for the Federal Reserve, more than that, um, you know, scores of them, but um, but they didn't know anything about, you know, the 19th century in particular, and that that's, you know, one of the things that I was able to sort of talk about in 08 was what was happening in the context of the 19th century and all the similarities yeah. Um, many of them didn't know about that. And so, yeah, so, so this is, these are interesting times. If the federal reserve is hiring a historian, um, for every branch of the fed, it, it means that they've recognized at some deep level that history does provide something. And that was very different from what they were, what economists were talking about in the sixties and seventies. Well, it seems that there was a point in which they said we're, we're in unprecedented times. And so therefore <laughs> the past is not relevant, you know, right. You know, right during right. The, the, some of the, boom times in the early, you know, uh, aughts and, you know, whatnot, there was, yeah. the economy has never looked like this before and therefore right. the sky's right. the limit and right. let's try this new, uh, you know, well, I formula remember, for creating things. And, sure. I remember people talking about black swans in 2008 and 2009 and I the black swan is, you know, everyone thinks that swans are white until you see a black swan and, mm-hmm. and then, and then you realize that your categories are broken and, that, mm-hmm. and um, and, uh, but the fact is that this, you know, 2008 was not a black swan. It was it was very much like uh, what happened in 1873. Mm-hmm. You know, a first a, f- a failing in mortgages, then a failing in mortgage banks, then a failing 
in the stock market. And, that, you know, so and then a failing commodity prices, then a failing stock market. So that whole sequence of events was, you know, deeply predictable if you knew anything about the 19th century. And, and I think that's the, that's the thing is that many economists didn't know much about the 19th century. And, and so what they thought were black swans turned out to be plain old white swans after all. Well, I think, you know, the point you make in the book that the, the Great Depression is is the reference point that all economists use for everything afterwards, and it's not really representative of the sort of cycle of, I know you don't like the word cycle, but the yeah, sequence yeah, yeah, no. of panics in the sure. earlier part of the 19th century. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, th I think there there were lots of tools at hand in the 20s, and, and you know, the, a way of thinking about 1929 is, and what I try to do in talking about it, is it, that this is a story about the coming of, of a world war. And a big chunk of this is, you know, American loans to Germany that don't get paid, not not the state of not the uh, German government as a whole, but the individual German states. And uh, and at some point, you know, the, the Germans do, do not pay off those loans. And that's a that's a really important beginning to, uh, I think, understanding these these crises. So it's a weird that's a weird event. That whole the, the, the depression of the 19th. 30s is interesting, but it's got its own shape. That's not. That's very little. Has very little to do with what happened. In, I think in uh, wait, no, no. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the other things that sort of struck me is, you know, the narrative we often tell students about about how the 19th century works is, you know, at the beginning of the 19th century, it's a fairly local economy, uh -huh. and then it becomes, <laughs> you know, the market revolution, and there's industrialization, right. and things become more integrated, and you have this, you know, island communities becoming integrated uh -huh. by the by the turn of the 20th century and, and the extent to which all of these downturns going back into the 18th century are really transnational and global mm -hmm. events that have their roots and you know like there's one one that in your book you talk about starts in the ukraine and works its way across the <laughs> right um which is not the narrative we usually tell about right about how the economy worked and, and the ways in mm. which these things why do you think people have missed that Huh. Yeah. I, well, I think part of it is a, is there there is a kind of yeah, this is this is dangerous territory here, but there's a kind of uh, there's a kind of romantic story that we have to tell about, um, and I think this is especially true for you know those of us on the left that that there's a story we, about self sufficiency and about the yeoman farmer and about you know th this sort of stuff that that's very. Um, you know, it's part of the Jackson, Jeffersonian story that, you know, self-sufficient farmers. But it's also, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a story that we like. And, it, and, and in general, um, that's story about – it makes a certain amount of sense that, that it is true that there are more goods flowing all over the place in the 1890s than there are in the 18-teens. Mm -hmm. um, but I think this idea about, about farm self-sufficiency is um, – it, it just doesn't doesn't really work, and I think what's what's happened. There's, a, as you know, many of lots of conflicts end up having a kind of political valence, mm -hmm. and so many historians say that there was a market revolution, and that, you know it was a much more localized economy at the beginning, and a less so at the end. And it tended to be much more conservative economists who made the opposite argument that you know that that the U.S. wouldn't have been settled without markets. Um, you know, while I while I tend to you know, be a, a historian and I tend to be, you know, I'm a scholar, I'm a radical, I'm a, you know, <laughs> um, I do think that, that, that our story about, you know, the, um, the, the market revolution is, is not right. That, that, 
you, you really can't explain, you know, you, you, getting all the way back to the revolution. And I think this is early American historians have a, have a, are much more skeptical about the story about, you know, gradual increase in market transactions. Um, but it's really hard to tell the story of the revolution without kind of factoring, thinking about these markets, right? You've got people who are traveling to, to this, to the sugar islands. The sugar islands are the really valuable ones. The U S such, you know, what becomes the U S is basically providing food for the sugar islands, you know, uh, flour and things like that. And, and as you know, from the empire's perspective, um, Losing the provisioning colonies is a problem because long term it may be very, very valuable. But in the short term, the really valuable things are the sugar colonies. And so they're willing to cut and run and keep their sugar colonies. And, and, and indeed, you know, by the end of the 18th century, expanding their, their sugar colonies, but giving up um, the provisioning colonies. And so so I think, you know, just that thinking about putting the U.S. in, in, a, in a world um, – and even the you know colonial America in a, in a kind of world context makes this story about self-sufficiency not really work especially well. And I think you know, for those of us who are world history, who, who teach world history or sort of think about world history, um, this idea that there are somehow places that are untouched or unconnected to the rest of the world uh, in the 18th century or the 12th century or the 8th century is, is actually, you know, d- doesn't actually it turns out not to actually be true. Goods travel very, very long distances um, from from a, you know from ancient times forward. Um, yeah, so I, I think that that's that's part of it. It's a little bit of the sort of nineteenth century um, disease that we have too, which is thinking that everything changes in our century. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know, sure. if you, you know what I mean, right? So, so it's our century uh, that's critical, and therefore everything beforehand is right, static, right. and everything afterwards not relevant. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. So. If you do antebellum America, that's when the market revolution is, and uh, and you know the rest is journalism, uh, <laughs> right? And yeah. if if and uh, and 18th century, you know, people were benighted, and it was a t- totally different world. You know, it, it, this, the story too of the rising middle class is always a rising middle class in the 14th century, in the 18th century, in the 19th <laughs> century. You know, there's always um, there's always uh, a crisis of gender right there's always, always a crisis uh, there, of gender, yeah. there's always a crisis of gender there's always male panic well <laughs> you know, eventually the this you've got male panic in the 14th the 18th the 19th and the 20th and the 21st century uh that's a lot of panic you know so <laughs> uh, so i i think uh that's it's one of the uh, the problems that we as historians face is that once we lock into our era we tend to get a kind of um, what's the word? Uh, we get a little bit nearsighted in that we see all the things that happen. And we understand very well the things that happen in our ambit, but we kind of miss the the, the bigger sweep that's that's um, taking place. And in, in, uh, this is also why I'm, I've been interested in big history. You know, this idea of thinking about human interaction with the natural world as a process that's um, or, or animal interaction with the natural world that, that takes place over hundreds, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of years, and thinking about well, what are the big changes there, and and that it does make us um, gives us a little bit of humility about the significance of our um, our own um, what we do, but also it, it brings other things into into focus. Uh, so one of the things that I'm becoming very interested in lately is the role of nitroglycerin because and dynamite um that dynamite does pretty radically change human interaction with the with the surface of the planet um 
And if you look at the plant, you know, the, the, the crust of the planet, the, our ability to access um, ores and metals and steel and all these other sorts of things, that's really, that's, that's a pretty, you know, from the perspective of, the, of you're just thinking about the lithosphere, mm-hmm. um, that, that's, that's a pretty profound change. But it's one that most historians of the 19th century don't necessarily put at the top of the list. You know, they'd say the steam engine or the light bulb or something. And, and uh, so anyways, so I think so one of the things that I, I in, in trying to read widely is, is, is just to think about changing our perspective about those things. And I think that's one of the, maybe um, that story about the market revolution is a, is a story that 19th century historians tell each other, but it doesn't qu- quite hold up to um, that much uh, scrutiny. Well, I mean, one of the things that I thought was different about this book from from Iron Confederacies or Steel Dragon uh-huh. and was, was the extent to which those were, you know, I don't want to say small books, but they were books <laughs> that were, you know, look, looking in a very sort of focused way and, you know, where you're sort of buried yourself in the archive and you're, uh-huh. you're trying to write about a very particular, you know, narrowly defined space and place and set of people and, and looking at them in a, you know, uh, very... Uh-huh focused way and this one is a much sort of bigger frame and a bigger sort of canvas you're trying to to paint on about you know looking at these different downturns not only Uh as as what they did to people in terms of the the destruction it caused but also the creation that Uh the the positive creation that came out of 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 downturns and and... uh yeah that's and that's that was that's been hard that's been a hard transition i I think somebody um there, there was there's a um this is this editor at UNC Press who told me that one of our jobs as scholars, as historians, is that we need to move away from what we do, and we have a kind of responsibility to tell, um, to, to to put it on a bigger canvas at our second or third books. He said that that um, that the tendency, his complaint about the tendency of, of scholars and historians is that they tend to write about the same thing over and mm-hmm. over again, and they, you know, it's a different place and a different time, and it, you know, but it's still in a way the same story, um, because you know that we, you, if you work on something for ten or twelve years, there's a way in which you collect material, there's a way in which you narrate, there's a way, and all that you're going to do that again, you know, for the second or third book. And he said that he he thought I hadn't really thought of it's interesting. He he thought it was a kind of responsibility that people were shirking by not stepping back and saying, all right, what do I think about the 19th century? What do I think about, you know, um, the history of the world? What, what could I tell a history of the South that starts in, in 10,000 BC and ends in 2000, you know, uh, 14, that, that is something that you can do as a, as a senior scholar who's you know, taught a lot, who's read a lot. Um, and that we need to, we have a kind of responsibility to sort of step back and, and make some bigger judgments, mm-hmm. uh, and that stuck with me. I think that there's something to that. I'm not sure. Uh, it's 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 it is very different. It's yeah. it's a it, it, you know it has a whole different set of skill set you need for writing yeah. that kind of history. Yeah, it's hard to tell a story with people, for example, if you if you step back and you're telling a story about seven financial panics. Uh, and I like to narrate with people. People, uh, yeah. Because I mean, the but, thing that your book does that so many other sort of books that are clearly written by economic historians is there are sort of people and things in this book, you know, the ways in which you connect, you know, these downturns to, to Moby Dick or to jute boxes or what have you, you know, it's, uh-huh. I can, at least as a reader, connect in a way that I can't uh, as right. easily with people who are doing it simply with the numbers. 
Right, right, right. And that may be the, one of the big challenges of, of this sort of history of capitalism is um, how do you, you know, use the, the, the language of economists, some of which is actually quite helpful, mm-hmm. um, uh, but, but not, um, you know, be a kind of, have a kind of radically abstract story that has no, uh, no people and events in it. That's uh, in a way that that is giving up history and, and mm-hmm. people and events and narration and storytelling is what we do. And, uh, yeah, so it's, it's definitely a, it's definitely a different, uh, kind of challenge, but you know, that's, that's the great thing about being a scholar is you get to learn stuff every day. And, and so when you go and speak to the federal reserve, do you think they actually listen? They do. It's funny because they, they do it like economists. So, um, I don't know if you've ever been to a conference with economists, but I try to avoid it if I can help it. Well, they they interrupt each other, so so they'll start talking and they'll start drawing, you know, and then immediately, you know, well, what about this? What about this? You don't even get to finish your talk when you when you're talking to economists. So, um, so I noticed that that they they don't they're not especially polite, which is it's it's good to get pushback, but Mm -hmm. you kind of want to at least tell your give your uh, you know presentation before you start to get the questions. Um, but no, if they've got a question, you know, if they, if they think I have a date wrong, they'll immediately raise, you know, say, well, wait, 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 when did the second bank start? Come on, <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, it, but it is, it's, it's interesting to talk to, uh, those folks and, and, and yeah, thinking about audience has been, is always complicated for us, right? Because that's the story of the first book, right? Is, is you're talking to a handful of people there, right? Right. Right. Your, so your dissertation is written for five or three people. And, and then you revise it to write for 100. Yeah. And you revise it to write for 100. And then, and then hopefully, you know, you get some pointers from your editor about how to write it for, you know, 300 or something. You, you learn how to step back a little bit and uh, do that. I think Leon was actually, Leon Fink that was good about that. He said, I don't want a dissertation. I want a book, mm-hmm. um, which is a pain to write because it's, it's, you know, it's a different sort of thing, but it's, he said, you know, you're not going to have time to revise the dissertation into a book when you're teaching or you're not going to have that much time. So you need I'd rather you write it as a book from the beginning. And, and uh, but uh, yeah, so learning that that process is is uh, is is difficult. And, and so in a way, talk, give, you know, giving talks is a great way of figuring out your audience and figuring out what works and what doesn't when they fall asleep, you know, when they're when you've got their interest. Um a great thing. That's what I actually think. It's actually hard for me to write when I'm not teaching because when I'm teaching, I can try ideas out. I, you know, I, I get I teach at William Mary, which is lots of small classes and things like that. So I um, I get to often teach about what I'm writing about. Um, not every day, but you know, I can often Enough. bring that stuff in, and uh, and I can see what works and see where their questions are and that sort of thing. And I, I think that's um, f- figuring out audience in a written format is difficult because there's no one there to talk to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you need to, part of what you need to do is kind of figure out how to use, you know, giving, giving public presentations as a way of um, feeding that back into the writing in a way. Do you think you'd be able to persuade your dad now about, uh... <laughs> I think so. In fact, it's funny. I think uh, he, well, so we had a huge falling out uh, in the, 80, let's see, 1981, uh, I was in, I had, I had gone to college, I was at Rollins College, my dad 
discovered that I had pretty different politics than he did. I was 17, I guess. And I was, I was in college and he, uh, he blew a gasket and, about something I said about farm workers and he got really angry and, and then he, he, he cut me off. He had, like, he, he wouldn't pay for college. So I had to, my, and then my mother, my parents were divorced. My mother wouldn't pay for college either. And so I had to drop out of school. Uh, I was at Rollins and I was on a scholarship, but it wasn't paying for everything. So, and I was out of school for two years and then uh, went back to college and paid for everything myself. So I paid for undergrad and grad school, um, with jobs and things like that. I had no support from my parents. What'd you do for the two years? Uh, for the two years I worked in, for the two years I worked in um, uh, bookstores. So okay. that was my yeah. And, well, I was also a busboy and a uh, I had a lot of jobs. I did yeah. Um, so I was I was I was did door to door things for Citizens Action, but in all these other uh, organizations. But eventually, bookstore assistant manager was, you know, the, oh, okay. the, uh, the where I, like, I rose up. And so, um, yeah, I remember making $5 and 53 cents an hour, uh, in the eighties, the um, which was pretty good pay, you know, yeah. in, in the early eighties for a, for a desk, for a, for a, a retail job. And, um, I think, uh, yeah, so that's what I did. And then when I went to college, I was a net, I, I had always been a computer guy. I'd always mm-hmm. been a science guy. And so, I got pretty good jobs in the library and then pretty good jobs in uh, computing when I was in undergrad. So, so that paid the bills. Um, yeah. So, so you asked about my dad and, and, um, so we were pretty estranged in, in undergrad and grad school. And then after I graduated, uh, he he realized that he couldn't really tell me what to do because he had had done absolutely nothing, you know, that to help, help me for college or anything like that. And we got, we got closer in a way. I mean, we, we, um, and not politically at first, um, uh, but, um, uh, and then gradually, I guess he remarried and he remarried a woman who, who, uh, was a, um, you know, more, uh, had somewhat more left-wing politics. And so by the end of his life, he died about five years ago. He was much less conservative and he was like, it turned out that for my father, the, the really motivating thing for him was who he was married to. Mm-hmm. And he, he weirdly echoed whoever it was that he was married to their, their, her, her sort of politics. I didn't really understand that until quite late in his life that he had married a conservative and that was why he was conservative. And, and, uh, uh you know, he had, he had had a very tough life. So I think by the, uh, he, he, my dad was in prison for a number of years and, and, uh, he, he had a very difficult life. And I think he, by the, really by the end, we did agree about things that we didn't agree about back in the eighties, back in the seventies. Was he happy that you became a historian? Uh, he, you know, I, both he and my mom were not thrilled. They thought I was going to be a computer guy, a Steve jobs or something like that. Cause I was good at computers, but, um, I, yeah, I think ultimately they, they liked, my dad was a big reader as, as was my mom. And so I think they liked the fact that I, I had taken on writing. Both of them thought, that my idea about being a historian was totally ridiculous and I would never succeed and that I would never get a job. That was what they told me again and again. Mm. Uh, luckily I didn't listen. <laughs> so. so I, I want to ask you one final question about a picture you posted on Facebook a couple of years ago of you with Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> right. Which I think is every historian's dream is to write a book that inspires Bruce Springsteen to invite them behind uh, 
yeah to backstage so i want to give you a chance to tell that story because i want to hear it okay yeah so i i don't know quite how it happened i, I um so my editor uh at the time at, at oxford um towards the end of the project it was initially for aha norton but later it was it was some um susan ferber and susan knew somebody who knew somebody who knew bruce springsteen's you know uh agent or something so i um i know i knew that he had finished um he just done this CD of the Seeger Sessions, and it had a version of the John Henry song. And I thought, well, you know, he might like to see this book, and so I sent the manuscript to him. I heard nothing. Well, to, and not to him, but like to the to whoever manages him. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, then I sent the page proofs, and then I sent <laughs> uh, then I sent the um, you know the, the pre-circulated bound book, which is this little paperback book that mm. looks kind of like what the book is going to look like. And then I sent the hardcover. <laughs> and and uh, so I take it you wanted to meet Bruce Springsteen at some well, point. Well, you know, I, I kind of I thought well, it would be great to get him to like read it or you know whatever. And yeah. and so what I didn't realize at the time is that Bruce Springsteen has never endorsed anything. So he's not even a guitar. Mm-hmm. So he has never put his name on any product. Huh. So uh, so and that's just part of the Bruce Springsteen thing. Like mm-hmm. that was some decision he made a long time ago. And um, so this, you know, I was clearly up against a brick wall here if I was going to ask him to say something about the book or, or and um, and then I guess it was reviewed in the New York Times, got a good review in the New York Times. And uh, and then uh, I don't know. Uh, and then I, I won, a, won a prize, I think. And then he he uh, I got a, uh, the, Susan Ferber got a call who is the editor at, at Oxford, got a call from um, one of Springsteen's agents of uh, uh, one of his his um, legal firms that were. And they said, we're prepared to endorse your product. <laughs> and Susan, Susan thought, it was, you know, she said this like, your they're talking product, about soap okay. or something like that, right? And uh, so he wrote this thing and it went through the intellectual property people at, at Springsteen's um, firm, the firms that manage Springsteen's, you know, uh, intellectual property and went back and forth there. And apparently that was a big part of the problem is they had to draw up this massive contract that said that Oxford could not use it you know, on a billboard, but they could use uh, it on a book, but they couldn't, you know, that kind Oxford of Oxford buys lots of billboards to advertise. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But this is, this was, you know, that was basically the, this is a law firm trying to decide how they're going to allow Bruce Springsteen to say something about this book. So it was, it was a little bit comical, the, this 50 page contract that Oxford had to sign when, uh, you know, Bruce wrote this, uh, one sentence about how he liked the book. <laughs> um, and, um, and then I guess I got a call from Dave Marsh, who wrote, you know, Dave Marsh's History of the Rolling, uh, Dave Mar- History of Rock and Roll, the Rolling Stones History of Rock and Roll. Dave Marsh wrote that. He's a, a writer for the Rolling Stone for many years, and um, turns out he was friends, quite friendly with uh, Bruce and knew, uh, you know, his wife was one of Bruce's managers or something like that. And he said, uh, well, Bruce told me to tell you um, that the next time he's in a town that's near, is performing in a town nearby, um, let him know and he'll get you a backstage pass because he'd like to meet you. So uh, I thought that, well, that's that's. So what, what was your response when you got that letter that Bruce Springsteen wants to meet you? Well, it was, it was you know, I thought it was very cool, but but I also, you know, he wasn't playing any, anywhere nearby and, and he wasn't actually touring at the time that I heard this. So I didn't really... Uh, think much of it because you know the likelihood that that uh, 
he would be touring. Did, at that point, he was not touring. And so anyways, uh, about uh, uh, two years later, I saw that he was playing in Richmond. And so I sent a message and that got passed on through the uh, various people. And um, they said, yeah, well, just come up to the to the um, the will call booth and we'll get you the backstage passes. And I figured, you know, there'd be a bunch of people there. Well, no, we were basically the only people backstage besides the members of the band. And um, uh, and there was one other guy that had performed with uh, Springsteen years and years and years ago when they first their very first band. Um, and he was there. But he hadn't spoken to Springsteen in, in uh, you know, 10 years. So basically, you know, we met him and, and uh, I had asked the security people if I could take the picture. And they said, no way. Absolutely not. <laughs> and then um, we fought and we spoke for a while. We talked about the book and he loved the book. And uh, and then I said, is it OK if you take a picture? Yeah, sure. So uh, I took the picture. So uh, it was yeah, it was lovely meeting him. And, and, you know, I think the thing is that he's this whole phenomenon. Right. Mm-hmm. And so carefully managed by lots and lots of people but he's a really smart guy a really kind of thoughtful person and he reads a lot hmm. um, but that's not it doesn't but not academic do, books usually no no including <laughs> lots of history and lots of academic books okay. and so but he but that's not the kind you know it's it doesn't quite mesh with the you know motorcycle driving you hmm. know um hero of the working class, you know, it, it's, it's, he's a, he's a studious and smart guy, but that's not really the part, exactly the image that you have. The role that he plays on stage. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so, so um, anyway, so it was, it was, just, it was really you know, terrific to meet him and talk, we talk about New Jersey. And I realized that part of the story, the thing, the reason he was interested in John Henry is because John Henry from New Jersey and sure. he's from New Jersey. And, and so, um, you know, here's, here's this icon who's been kind of, uh, very much a part of this, you know, Southern folklore mm-hmm. is from the place that he's from. And that's that he, he really liked that too. So, uh, yeah, no, it was, it was actually, it was really fantastic. And I was of course somewhat starstruck. I'm pretty good at talking to people, but, uh, you know, this is Bruce Springsteen. So it was exactly. uh, totally different. Nothing prepares us in graduate school for talking to Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, I don't think that there's no class on that. So. Well, it's not, you know, just the, the levels of, of people between you and him to to make that meeting happen sounds a lot like the sort of levels of economic complexity that led to all these downturns in the 19th century where right. one person's lending money to five other people a thousand miles away and don't really know what they're investing in and right, all right. of a sudden and, things go bad or things go worse. But uh, <laughs> right. and, Yeah, and there's no real way of communicating. You know, so that's that's the other thing too is that he couldn't. You couldn't you know, just email him and say, "Dear Bruce, exactly. I wrote this right. book. Come read it." And I'll, you know. Right, and he couldn't. I, and clearly, you know, if he emailed me, then I'd know his email. You know, like there's, like, there's a way in which you you got to imagine. You know, famous people have to protect themselves from that sort of. You know, from from people who are friends stalking so, them. Yeah. Stalking mm-hmm. exactly. No, totally right. And so. Uh, anyway, so it was it was uh, lovely to meet him and to sit down and talk to him and uh, yeah and uh, and to and to watch him perform on stage that was the other uh, great thing because I you know heard his music before and I we'd actually seen him perform in the eighties at Chapel Hill mm-hmm. but um, no just he's amazing you know he's he's an acrobat it's really it's really astonishing so well Scott it was really really great to talk with you great talking to you too David and uh, yeah I didn't think we'd get to the 
you know, our graduate school experiences <laughs> at, at Chapel Hill, but there it is. Uh, yeah, no, and, and uh, I, I'm, it's so happy to be on American History Untucked. I, this, is a, this is a fantastic thing you're doing. All right. Well, maybe I'll, I'll run into you in Chapel Hill. I'm going back in June. I don't know whether you're going to still oh, be in town, but uh, uh, I'll yeah, buy you a beer. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. Talk to you soon. That was a lot of fun talking talking to Scott. If you want, by the way, to see his uh, picture with Bruce Springsteen, which is really something worth, worth taking a look at, uh, we've got a copy of that picture uh, on our Facebook page uh, and uh, on this the podcast website, AmericanHistoryUntucked.blogspot.com. Uh, as always, if you've got questions or comments about the show, uh, you can email me at AmericanHistoryUntucked.com at gmail.com, or you can check us out on iTunes. Uh, Until next time.